This episode of Behind the Bots is brought to you by Fingertech Robotics, North America's top manufacturer of combat robotics parts. If you're interested in building your first combat robot, check out Fingertech's Viper Kit, which includes everything you need to build a fully functional, competitive ant weight. Fingertech also carries a complete line of wheels, hubs, motors, and other components if you want to build a bot from the ground up. Check them out online at www.fingertechrobotics.com. system 150 feet below ground this is behind the bots the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind battle bots i'm Lindsay. i'm luke i'm kyle and i'm nicole Woo! and today on the podcast our interview with switchback captain greg needell this week we're welcoming a new fifth member to the pod nicole egidio our new editor Yay! Hi, Nicole! Hi! Ba-ba-ba-bow! <laughs> We're so happy to have you, Nicole! Welcome to the team! Thanks so much! Happy to be here! We'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player FM, and Podbean. Follow us on Facebook at Behind the Bots and tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have five news items for you today. First up, it's travel week for BattleBots teams who are flying and driving out to Vegas, getting settled in in their hotels, setting up their pit tables, and preparing for the competition, which begins on Monday at lunchtime. For the second year in a row, Mike and Andrea Galately from Team Witch Doctor are traveling to the competition in their ambulance camper van, which they built in 2020 and have driven nearly 10,000 miles to date. Check out photos of the van's new and improved interior on the team's Facebook page. This week, we got a couple surprise additions to the 2021 roster. Deadlift, Deep Six, The Big Dell, and Jaeger are all confirmed. Of the four, the biggest surprise is Jaeger, a neon multibot from Germany that is running a two-wheeled articulated sawbot, a two-wheeled drum spinner, and a two-wheeled undercutter. Meanwhile, we got official confirmation that Deep Six and the Big Dill are in from Team Malice, which is putting up the cash to sponsor Deep Six, the Big Dill, and Jackpot this year. On over to the UK, where Robot Wars favorite Sabretooth is making its BattleBots debut with yet another radically different design, this time sporting a Sabretooth tiger-shaped vertical disc. The robot appeared in five seasons of Robot Wars and will again be captained by Gabe Strad, who competed on BattleBots with Duck in 2019 and Beta in 2020. And finally, we want to encourage you to watch a brand new YouTube series from friend of the pod Gil Hova, who's building excellent recaps of Norwalk Havoc, chopping down 15 hours of live footage to super watchable and really well-produced 30-minute episodes. Check out the first episode of the new series on Norwalk Havoc's YouTube channel, or look for our link on Facebook. And that's it for this week's news. Can we just give a big shout-out to Gil in general? Oh my god. As a human who... Gil's amazing! Like... So much dedication to robot combat in general, Norwalk Havoc specifically. I mean, like, 
the reason the wiki is so good is because of Gil. The yeah. reason all this awesome new video content and like condensed content is coming out right now because of Gil. The fact yeah. that we are going to know so much more about the fights going into these next few um these next few like sessions is because of Gil. Like that guy is just worth his weight in platinum. He's amazing. Yeah. Every live event needs a Gil. Um, someone who is willing to <laughs> yes. do the really difficult work that is just so time consuming, but so necessary. I've been so impressed with his work with the statistics, his work with ranking the bots. And these new 30 minute episodes are so incredibly watchable. It's like, it's like watching a TV show. Like I, I would 100% sit down and watch this every week. And, um, he's just done such a fantastic job. So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing all of the other videos in his series and just really want to commend Gil and say that, uh, he's a rock star. And, um, yeah, he's, he's really a driving force behind a lot of the success that we're seeing at, at Norwalk. Oh, and from what I understand, he has a, he has a little podcast of his own, doesn't he? His podcast is not little. It is so much larger than ours, Kyle. It is massive, all right? <laughs> it's way larger than ours. He yeah. has a, a massive podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when we first met him, he was like, hey, I really love your podcast. And we're like, oh, thanks so much, man. And he's like, oh, yeah, I have a little podcast of my own. And I was thinking, yeah, probably. Yeah, I'll check it out. And then when I saw his numbers, I was like, dear God, <laughs> this is a massive podcast. <laughs> it's... <laughs> His podcast is called Lidology. Lidology, yeah. It's a uh, it's a game design podcast, which is really interesting. It's really well produced. And I encourage you, if you uh, like game design, to go and check him out. Although Gil doesn't need the traffic from our little podcast, okay? All right, he's doing just fine, Kyle. <laughs> no. He's doing great. <laughs> All right. After the break, our interview with Greg Needell from Switchback. Special first-time guest, Switchback Captain Greg Needell. In 2005, Greg competed at the BattleBots R3 event with a three-headed pneumatic flipper called Tetracide. For the past seven years, he's run Texas-based Rev Robotics, which supplies robot parts and components to 10,000 schools across 180 countries. This year, he and his team are competing at BattleBot Season 6 with Switchback, which puts a powerful vertical spinner at the end of a 180-degree lifter arm. We're really looking forward to learning more about the team and the bot in the hour ahead, so welcome to the show, Greg. Hey, nice to be here. I am so happy that you're here. Um, this is a uh, an interview that I've really been looking forward to ever since I saw your team's application video all the way back in March. Um, and there's been so much speculation from the fans online about how the robot's going to work. And, uh, many of those fans have sent in questions. So, uh, we're really looking forward to, uh, the listener question segment as I'm sure you are too. Yep. Absolutely. I would love to start by, uh, so let's see how the sausage gets made. This is Monday night. Uh, BattleBots will begin in less than a week, so next Monday at lunchtime. Uh, so within the next week, you are going to get your robot from Texas to Las Vegas. You're going to get your team there, check into your hotel, find out what your first fight is. I'm curious, in the next seven days, what still needs to get done uh, on Switchback? 
So switchback, um, both of our robots are complete and tested. Um, our biggest tasks right now on the robot is finishing up tuning, motor tuning, uh, motor testing. Um, you know, everybody's trying to like optimize spin up time, you know, tweaking current limits and current draws. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're worried about how much time we're going to be able to tune like that once we actually get to Las Vegas. Um, but beyond that, I mean, it's like spare parts, uh, pack up, make sure we don't forget anything. Um, but, you know, we feel pretty prepared um, or as best you can as a, as a rookie team with a new robot. One of the most impressive things about your team is the size of the team and also the background of the team members. Can you tell me a little bit more about who's going to be joining you in the pits? Sure. So we have a 12-person team. Um, I didn't do the total number of years of robot experience, but I would say the average person has, you know, 10 to 15 years of robot experience. Um, we have all been brought together. Um, some people are work uh, at Rev Robotics, uh, and then others are just friends, but we're all kind of coupled around our previous experience with first robotics or other, you know, small combat robots and things like that. I also heard that uh, one of your team members has 2 million subscribers on YouTube. So you've got uh, even a celebrity in the pit. So can, can you tell us more about him? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, Scotty is a good friend of mine who I met in China, you know, five years ago, six years ago. And we've been kind of constant friends while I was building rev and building our supply chain up scotty was you know a digital nomad uh trying to explore uh factories and things like that and so along the way he has built this incredible following uh around uh, on his youtube page uh, strange parts and when we were just chatting about what things were going on uh we i was like hey do you want to be on this this battlebots team um, he actually was like, hey, do you want me to just come film this? And I was like, no, nah, I want you to be on the team. So so Scotty uh, joined us, uh, moved to Texas for over a month, um, participated in a big portion of the build. And um, we're excited to see um, what the video that he's been working on, on kind of the creation of Switchback, which will launch at some point on his YouTube channel. I, um, I'm really looking forward to that. And I think it's cool that we're going to i mean battlebots it seems like such a large sport but really you know it's relatively small in comparison to youtube you know or to twitch or to live streams or whatever so yeah i i think i think having him on your team is really going to get a lot of new fans interested in your bot and also just interest in the show in general which i think is really cool and i feel like we need more of that so um so it's really cool that you're bringing that to the competition I was going to say, I, I'm excited about it too. I, I will say that one of the pieces of content that I wish there was more on with BattleBots is more of the like behind the scenes building, the like the challenges that teams have, the why you pick certain materials, the motors, like the actual like, you know, nuts and bolts behind it. I, obviously, that doesn't always work for like a primetime Discovery Channel version, but like that's the nice part about like the YouTube platform is that like you can create depth of content that people can go down rabbit holes on. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's, you know, some of the stuff that gets shown and maybe gets people more interested at, in uh, combat robots and, you know, honestly, just robotics in general. 
Yeah, I, I hear that as like such a huge part of of your story and and the huge part of of your career for for the last seven years at Rev. Which I promise we're going to get to, but first maybe we can start by going back in time. So, where did you start off as a BattleBots fan? Like uh, back in the Comedy Central days, you know? Can you talk about that? Yeah, huge, huge BattleBots fan. Um, huge BattleBots and Junkyard Wars fan. Um, yeah, I uh, like both of those. Like late 2000 or late not late nineties. Um, I was in like high school, middle school, high school. And yeah, it was a, it was awesome. Right. I mean, I've, I've always been mechanically inclined. I've always been one of the, you know, taking things apart, you know, the, the, the born engineer type. And, you know, that was a validation that there was like, Oh, this is really cool. And that's kind of what I can do with it. I mean, I remember um, like I taught myself to weld because I wanted to build a battle bot. Um, like in high school. So I, um, my, my story is actually pretty like, this is like one of those weird ones, but like my dad, uh, owned an air conditioning and heating company. And I remember like working with him to try to make money to buy a welder so that I could learn to weld because I had somehow pieced together and it's not a stretch, but I had pieced together that the thing that was holding me back as like a 15 year old kid about from being on BattleBots or being on junkyard wars was that I didn't know how to weld, hmm. right? Like, so that was, that was a motivation. And I, I think that there's a lot of things like that where I, like, I see something and I'm like, well, in order to get to that thing, I need to learn this other thing. And that drives me to try something new. And so it's a huge impact. Yeah. Um, when you think back on battle bots, you know, did you always know that you were going to be an engineer? Did you always know that you were going to compete on BattleBots? Um, like when you kind of think back to the late '90s, early 2000s. I know that I always wanted to do it. I didn't know um, that I would ever actually get an opportunity. Um, you know, right about the time that I graduated high school, and I think I was getting to getting the skill set to it. Um, to the skill set that I could have made a BattleBot is when it went off the air, um, and so I. I, I you know, that was kind of a bummer. Um, but I, from an engineering perspective, I think I always knew that I was going to go into engineering. Um, what type of engineering was, I think, more of the question because I had a diverse interest between, you know, electronics and mechanical. But uh, I think the engineering path was was predetermined early on. And uh, the BattleBots was something that I was like, damn, that would be cool. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I I feel like today there are so many wonderful robotics programs for kids in school. And uh, I, I, I guess like, I don't know if you could take us back 20, 20 ish years uh, to when you were in high school and middle school. Was it the same? You know, like, uh, I, I, don't seem to recall, but I mean, anecdotally, maybe just uh, it was happening. I didn't know about it. Um, but I feel like today, like I hear about all these amazing robotics programs everywhere. But, um, you know, like what 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 changed in the last 20 years? I mean, if, if that if that is true. Yeah. So, I mean, um, first robotics, um, which is the largest and oldest, was, you know, founded in 1992. So it's happened mm. well beyond. Um, I, I'm a. I, my school, uh, partic- I participated on a first team when I was in high school and students everywhere participate on first teams. Now, um, mm. the technology has changed and evolved. Um, back when I was in high school on a first team, um, the kit that they gave you was more of a, you know, 
I don't want to say a junkyard wars experience, but like mm. just a pile, pile of parts. And now um, it's a lot more. So it was a lot of like hack this together to build this robot and you can buy stuff, but what you can buy is very limited. And there are not a lot of companies available back then to like who are providing parts. And so if you had wanted to build a gearbox, you had to buy the gears from over here and you had to custom machine everything. There wasn't just a, oh, I can go buy this gearbox and put it on my robot. So what's really evolved is, um, and the reason you've probably heard about it more is the accessibility of uh, the components, but also just the adoption of technology into our everyday life. Um, right. You know, you know, even just 10 years ago, you ask random person on the street, like, you know, they've never heard about an Arduino, their Raspberry Pi or, you know, or STEM in general as a, you know, but today you could ask the average person has probably heard of these things if they're not familiar with it. And so I think that there's just been a, you know, as technology in general has become more ubiquitous in society, um, these programs uh, have become more accessible to everyone. And so I think you're probably just hearing about them more, but they've been around for the exact same mission. Um, and it's the same mission um, that, you know, BattleBots has, you know, in terms of like, yes, it's entertainment, but it's also inspiration, right? There's a lot of right. students out there who, probably have that natural ability where they're curious about things or they're natural problem solvers or builders or makers. Um, but they don't know how to take that to the next step. Right. I mean, you know, kids, yes, an average kid, what an engineer does, they say, Oh, they, well, they drive a train. Right. So there's still a gap between, you know, teaching students that these, you know, nat natural tendencies to build and create and problem solve, is a career path called engineering. And so BattleBots might inspire students to go look around and find a local robotics team, a local first team to join. Um, and then when they're on those teams, they can have a really deeply enriching experience where um, they can not just see it on TV, but actually do it and build something new and create something. And you know, the, the act of taking an idea from your head and turning it into reality builds this creative confidence that stays with people throughout a lifetime. And that's why I think these programs are so impactful. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, after high school, you went to study engineering at RIT and you got involved in two really cool projects, uh, the DARPA Grand Challenge and building Tetracide. Uh, two very, very different projects, I guess, um, although they, they were both building toward killer robots, I suppose. Um, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if you could tell me more about, about both um, and kind of how you decided to get involved in, in both. I, I think it was even the same year, right? Two, 2005? Yeah, so I mean, I I am not a great student historically, like in classroom, like engineering knowledge and math and without application is just like I'm I'm not good at it, right? Like, um, but having something that's an applied engineering problem that I know I need to learn these higher level this higher level math to be successful at is kind of the thing that kept me motivated throughout you know, getting through college. And there were some rocky points there. I'm not going to suppress that at all. Um, so the DARPA Grand Challenge, um, uh, I was part of an engineering um, organization on campus called Engineering House at RIT. 
And it was like a, almost like a fraternity where we lived together, but it was very engineering centric. And DARPA Grand Challenge had come out year one, which I think was 2004. And a bunch of us were just, we're all undergrads and we're like, we want to do this. And one of the cool things about RIT is when you say like, you get a bunch of undergrads together and you say, oh, we want to do this. Like it is likely that you will find some degree of support on campus. Um, at least that's how it was when I was there. And so it was a group of friends um, from Engineering House and so others who kind of got added along. And we were this like total junkyard dog DARPA team where we had no money. I mean, th this is like back like year two when like Carnegie Mellon was spending a million and a half dollars a year. They had like 20 something LIDAR sensors on their on their Humvee. And like we, we could afford one LIDAR sensor. And so it was all about like, how are we doing autonomy with less sensors on not to say the highest grade computers because we couldn't afford them. And our car was actually an abandoned car that we found in the uh, RIT parking lot where we convinced a student to give us this geostorm, right? And the, cool. the idea was the, the idea was the premise of the tech that we were working off of um, is actually really cool looking back at it. Like we were way off, like we were never going to win. Like we did terribly at like our DARPA site visit. Like we didn't, like it was bad. But the, the cool part was we were trying to say like, look, we don't have all this money for all of these crazy LIDAR sensors and all this like server racks and like, you know, you know, tons of grad students that are like micro GPS pointing the courses. But we also said like a person gets into a car with only two cameras, their eyeballs, and somehow you're able to still drive. And so our vision was like, could you figure out a way to like make it less about like way overloading the sensor, like the number of sensors you need and more about how do we infer things in a smarter way? Um, we were not that successful. Like we did some really clever things and there were some things that were fun and believe me, it was fun to like remote drive a full-size vehicle around parking lots at a, at a university. Uh, but fully autonomous compared to like what we have today on commercial vehicles like Tesla. It was very, very, you know, crude. Uh, but, you know, it was also 2005 and, you know, autonomous vehicles were still something that they liked to throw in science fiction and nobody had one. And now it's like, oh yeah, we're definitely all going to have autonomous vehicles in the next 10 years. Right. So, you know, that was kind of the idea of the DARPA, DARPA grand challenge, but it was, I love stuff where it's a big challenge that's a little bit unconstrained and you just kind of have to break down those big problems. And sometimes you're wildly successful and sometimes you fail completely, but either way, like it was a great experience that you learn from and, you know, it contributes to kind of who you are and the decisions you make after that point. Yeah. Our, um, our family was pretty obsessed with the DARPA Grand Challenge in 2005. Um, and I recently went to Washington, D.C. and went to the Smithsonian, got to see Stanley, um, which ended up winning that year. My, um, my dad, personal story, um, anecdotal side, side, sidebar, uh, my dad tried to donate his car to the Stanford team. And um, I just think it'd be so weird if uh, if I had got to the Smithsonian and uh, I don't know seen our family car instead, which would be really funny. But um, <laughs> they ended up uh, choosing that uh, Volkswagen Touareg or whatever. Um, 
but uh but yeah very very cool and like the the challenges that they've done since then are, are really really neat too um which is yeah. kind of like a good dovetail into uh rev but uh first i want to hear also about tetracide so the decision to uh to yeah to to build a battle bot to put it into r3 you know can you talk about that yeah so i mean it was like honestly one of the like i'm a little like uh i kind of sometimes jump before i think sometimes but like I was like, I wanted to do BattleBots. BattleBots was off the air. And then all of a sudden, I see posting. I'm in Rochester, New York. And all of a sudden, there's a BattleBots event in Rochester, New York for a full-size combat robot. I'm like, how does how does this luck even happen? So um, same thing, a few friends. Um, we got together, um, mostly friends through First Robotics. Um, First Robotics is a very mentorship-driven um, competition. So I have always mentored and worked with different high schools. So I have friends who are engineers, I engineer from Xerox and some others who joined the team. And, you know, we built it in the basement of my like townhouse that I was living in and we just kind of did it. And it was terrible, right? <laughs> like it was, it was absolutely terrible <laughs> because we built essentially like an armored first robot to mm. compete against death machines. And <laughs> <laughs> like, that was a that that was a, an eye-opening experience and um i mean believe me i love building stuff it, it'll it is all the journey of building something is always to me the most fun part obviously competing is fun in a different way but like i really do like the journey of building something um so that was great uh stressful uh, my dad was there we you know we we got to build this thing together and it was it was great it was just the robot was awful, right? Like, uh, you don't, don't ever build a triangular robot. Like that's a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> it just don't ever build a robot that doesn't fit through a door, right? Like, especially a 250 <laughs> pound one. Um, you know, we, I used motors that we got out of like scooters, like electric scooters. I mean, we were on the edge, right. Of like old technology, right. Um, where it was still all brushed. Um, I mean, I guess that's still kind of a thing. Brush is still new, but like we were using like sealed lead acid batteries. We weren't even using NICADs at that point. Like we were just way off the mark because none of us had ever done it before. And it went all right. Um, it just, I, I, I'll never forget. Like one of our first matches was actually against um, um, back then called Frisbee, but now called Shredderator um, or Captain Shredderator. And uh, Brian, like, like literally eight seconds in, just like we were dead. <laughs> like, there's this like the the, yeah. wor the worst clip on YouTube of like like me going driving this robot like first time out, and literally it's just like whoop. Okay, we're knocked out. I'm just like like months of work just gone in eight seconds, and it was it was miserable. But we rebuilt it, and then we we did all right. We won a couple fights, and um, but it was a, it was a it was like a, I definitely did not know what I was doing. <laughs> I I feel like now, 15 years later, you have a considerable leg up. Uh, not only do you have one BattleBots um, competition under your belt, but you've been like designing robots uh, at Rev for a very long time now, and you understand how they how they all work. Um, and uh, I think that 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 is 
considerably more than a lot of the competitors, you know, who come in and they're good mechanical engineers, but they don't really understand electricity or, you know, um, they're really good designers, but um, may not understand how to drive or whatever like that. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about Rev. So um, starting the company in 2014, now growing it to 10,000 schools served. Um, can you talk about that journey, you know, the decision to get into educational robots and um, where yeah. where that journey's taken you? Sure. I, I am. I'm happy to talk about this. Um, so I my career has been in product development, um, mechanical engineering, but I my my career started. Um, I was designing power tools for Black and Decker, like DeWalt and Delta. Um, I did some toys after that. And then um, and then I took a break because I was burned out of spending a lot of my time in China all the time. And I, I did this stint of my career where I ran um, the Innovation Center for Southern Methodist University. And it's like they're on campus makerspace and I ran innovation programs. I was kind of like the practical engineering product guy on campus. And one of the things that I was asked to do was do a little bit of like research, right? And I had to, so I'm gonna pick, some, pick a topic that I know and love. And so my question topic was, similar to what you asked me, right? Like these robotics competitions have been around for a long time how come it's not at every school, right? Like, I mean, you know, Texas or uh, football teams, 67% of high schools in the United States have a, have a football team. Only right. like 12% have a robotics team. So why is there such a giant void? And so I started asking that question and I won't bore you with all the, like how many surveys I sent out and how many teachers I talked to, but ultimately I bucketized the answer to that problem, uh, that question into three things. It was the, the cost of the program and materials, um, the the professional development, you know, there's like a teacher who's going to teach these students because there's no teachers that have like, there are now, but there's not that many that are specialized in robotics. And then there's also like, to be honest, the political environment related to the district, right? Like some districts just don't prioritize STEM and robotics the way that they should. And so that was kind of my conclusion. Um, I have a, a good friend of mine, uh, David Yanishak, who's the co-founder of Rev, who's also on Switchback, uh, also on the team. And we were kind of sitting around talking about that. I'd come to that conclusion. And we were like, well, look, I know about product development, right? And he was working at um, Texas Instruments um, and I was working at SMU. And we're like, I know about product development. I know how to get things made. And so what if we could drive the cost of the parts down, right? Most educational products are really approached from a maximizing revenue perspective, um, like textbooks. Why are textbooks so expensive? Well, because they sign an exclusive deal to use this textbook and so they can charge whatever they want for it. Um, when you're building products, there's generally two schools of thought. There's, um, you can either go wide, right? Like make it up in volume. Right. And then you don't go mm. crazy on your margins. You just say, OK, I want it everywhere. Um, or you can try to make as much margin as you can in a small market. Most educational companies fall into the second category where they want to make the most money that they can in this market they've established. And then they leverage exclusive relationships with like I'm only an approved vendor in this district. So you have to buy from me so I can charge whatever I want. Like those things are not great. Um, so we said, well, 
let's go and look at all the educational robotics kits and sets and everything that's existed previously. And let's go take really cost-effective design for engineer, like a design for manufacturing approach to the mechanical side of things and using as commodity level electrical components as we possibly can. And the goal was to build something that is optimized for mass manufacturing. So we ended up designing a kit and, and products that were injection molded, extruded, stamped, these very, very efficient um, manufacturing processes. And then we built control system that is very cost effective because we were going to manufacture it in a really wide amount. And that's kind of what we did. And so we worked um, because, you know, I've been involved in FIRST for so long. Um, we went and approached FIRST with our new system that we were going to do. We were going to revolution everything. We were going to be the reason that FIRST was in every school, everywhere. Uh, and it turns out that's harder than, uh, than, than thinking about it. But, um, you know, we, we were able to have those conversations. And over a couple of years, there was some adoption. And um, the cost to start up a... Um, first tech challenge team used to be around like 1800 to $2,000 to get started with the mechanical set, the controls, the registration, all that together. When we launched our mechanical system and our control system, which happened on two different years, the cost to start up a team um, kind of, it got real close to $1,000. So, um, so when you take that same kind of bucket of money, which is all sponsorship driven or fundraised or things like that. And you could take that same bucket of money and make it go twice as far, you have an adoption growth uh, for more teams. And that that is kind of the effect that we've been, we kind of how we grew and got to where we are now is help drive the cost down. Um, and then adoption goes up. And then we also do a lot of work related to um, making videos and guides and things uh, that are completely free on our website to try to make getting into robotics easier for teachers everywhere so that you don't have to have, you know, a professional development course that's paid for by, you know, your district to understand how to get started. And that those two things have made us, you know, kind of been exactly what we've done and how we've grown. Now, it hasn't always been the case, right? You're not always able to just make things lower cost, lower cost, lower cost, but that's kind of the approach and we we found success in doing it that way your company's sent robot kits all over the world uh 180 countries i challenge anyone to uh to name 180 countries <laughs> you know if you can sit down and think about it um so you must have sent it to some pretty small countries maybe some still developing countries um can you talk about where where you can find a, a, a rev robotics kit yeah so um pretty much every country on the planet. I think there's right now it's like 206 or seven um, UN net recognized nations. Um, the, so we are the platform of choice um, for this program called First Global. And First Global is the Olympics of robotics for high school age students, where there is one team per country. So that is, like the Olympics, right? You send your best and your brightest and you represent it and they're all using rev sets and parts. Um, we don't have that, like, it's not just exclusively our parts because like of a negotiation. Um, the reason is actually to level the playing field because 
Team USA can obviously have access to our unlimited catalog and like every robot vendor everywhere. But, you know, Team Ghana, right? Um, you know, uh, Team Lesotho, they, they have a little bit of a challenge when it comes to getting parts. And so by limiting everybody to the same kit, um, it makes the competition more of an intellectual competition than a who's got more money um, competition, which is, you know, a pretty good thing. But yeah, we have we have students all around the world that use our use our parts to participate in these programs. Um, it is harder to. It's easier to name countries that don't have it than ones that do. Um, obviously, mm. we have some issues like. Um, with sanctioned nations um, that, you know, we, it's hard to send technology into places that um, your government says can't have technology, you know, because of, you know, conflicts, but um, we do try to get them in as many places as we are legally allowed to, and as many countries as want them, which is pretty much everybody. It's hard to say, oh, in an entire country, nobody's interested in, in doing this. So uh, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty cool thing, but it is a, you know, it, I don't know. It's some, someday in my life, I would love to just go on um, a robot tour of the world where like, I just go meet all these students in all these different countries and see how they do it. But um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, we have, I, I could tell you like, like a couple stories from these competitions that are like the really like the, the ones that justify why I do this. Um, like there was a team every year at this competition, there's a, a, one called team hope, which is always a refugee team. Um, and so one of the, one of the girls on this team at the last competition we had in person was in 2019. Um, but she was a Syrian refugee who was living in Turkey in a refugee camp. Mm. And they were selected to participate in this. And they actually went on to win. They were on the winning alliance of teams and what was amazing is this theme about this was all about cleaning up the ocean. And when I went and talked to her and I, there was a, a problem with their robot, I was helping to debug it. And she was like, thank you very much. And she handed me this little like, you know, crocheted uh, octopus. And I was like, oh, thank you. And, she, and then she proceeded to tell me all about this, like <laughs> all about this, you know, octopus that she did research on because it was an infected animal about ocean, how their, their population was declining. But this young woman was living in a refugee camp in Turkey, building a robot, worried about this octopus, right? And like, and then ends up winning this competition against the United wow. States and the UK and all this other stuff. It's like, that's, that's like amazing. Um, and these types of events for me, like there's two really big things that drive me, you know, but one of them is I really hate the injustice of geography in the world where where a person is born or to what their circumstances totally impacts their trajectory of life, where it shouldn't matter um, whether a student is born to East Africa or a developing nation, um, that they can only, their trajectory is capped based on their local economy. Technology is an equalizer, right? You can give someone access to the internet, um, they can change the world. And that's that's been proven time and time again. And so we're hoping to enable some of this. The other part of this is the, the equality of intellect, where students go to these competitions and they might 
they realize that they are no different than teenagers from any of the other countries that capitalize on the news cycle, right? They, they're like, oh, wow, I am just as smart as the kids from the USA or Canada or any of these other countries in the world. And that's extremely empowering. And the hope is that that empowering and that confidence will carry them forward to be driven to accomplish a lot of things. And that's, that's really like, those are things that, you know, when the day is hard and, you know, we're having supply chain issues or, you know, some products not going the way we want it to, like, those are the things that I reach to, to keep me going. And that's what Rev is all about. That's really amazing. I love that mission. And so much of BattleBots and the fandom is also about inspiring kids and it's and like getting kids to sign up for their robotics program at school. Um, it's just a very nice um, kind of virtuous circle of inspiration and resources and access um, that is just so incredibly important. And I absolutely 100% share your vision of one day there being just as many robotics teams as there are football teams um, in the world, um, or I guess soccer teams outside of the U.S. And um, you know, it's it's really very cool that that you're you're helping build that that world. Um, I'm I'm going to uh, to make this a segue into Kyle. Kyle is going to going to be uh, a- asking you all of the listener questions um, about uh, about your new robot because there are about a million and a half. So uh, Kyle, take it away. Yeah, surprisingly, uh, you build something really unique and everybody has questions about it. Who knew? Um, All right, so first questions that we have are from Alexander Archer. I swear we don't pick him first because both of his names start with A, but he is very often the first one we pick because he's got a lot of good kind of intro questions. So first of all, the question everybody wants to know, can you tell us a little bit about your bot's primary weapon? Um, It's a primary weapon... Alexander's never seen before. And quite frankly, I don't think anybody's ever seen before. So please tell us about, you know, what the function of it is. Remember, we're in audio format and kind of tell us how it works. Sure. So Switchback is an ambidextrous drum spinner. So we have a large drum that is on an arm and that arm can swing 180 degrees so it can hit from either side. Um, It is to clarify, I guess some of the questions that I that, that I've you know seen online, it's not a hammer drum. So I I love sawblades and Scorpios and but it's not that right. It is it is a more slowly articulating more of like the lifter arms that you see um, with a drum on it, which allows us to stop in any position. So we can hit hard with a drum at any position, and that probably should scare some other builders who you know. They put a lot of armor, you know, four inches above the floor to protect themselves from all the verts and all the horizontals that exist, but they're not prepared to be hit on the top. Um, so th- that's kind of where this weapon falls in. Um, but it is a stacked disc weapon. Um, so we can configure the number of discs that are on the drum at any time. So we have room. And when it's maxed out, it is the full 80 pounds. Um, what? <laughs> okay. Yeah. It, yeah, so it's it's well we said look, we're not going to design ourselves so that we we can limit it. So our drum is capable of going full 80 pounds at the full 250 tip tip speed. Um it is very interesting to drive it in that condition, but uh, <laughs> but it can do it. Um uh 
not not very, we we give up a lot of maneuverability when we do that. But um, yeah. So so the reality is is that it's probably going to be we will probably run a 55 pound stack um, at somewhere as close to the highest end tip velocity that we can. Um, and we hope to, you know, hit some people where they're not used to being hit. Question. Do you have a test box? How, how do you know that this is so difficult to drive around when it's like at full weight and at full speed? I'm, I'm just absolutely curious. Cause obviously like high kinetic energy weapons are scary to test, Um, some people do the empty warehouse, hide behind, like hide outside and put a camera inside. Some people do the, in an abandoned parking lot and be behind a hill a half a mile away. So, so what are you, how are you testing this thing? So we, we have a, uh, so Rev has a warehouse, um, and we have behind us, we have an entire like truck dock, right? Like, like where all of our loading docks and stuff are. And so what we've been doing is, um, we bought some thick polycarb and we basically polycarb um one of our truck uh one of our loading docks so we're standing in the warehouse looking out to the truck dock um, with the polycarb shield basically with the polycarb with a thick polycarb shield in between us and the robot and we make sure that it is completely empty a lot of our video our test videos are very nighttime scenes and we kind of do that, but we are. That's a really smart way to do it. That's really great. I appreciate that. that. I, I I wish I wish we had a test box, right? Like if any, uh, but uh, the price of polycarb is real expensive right now, and I don't know oh, how yeah. to store it. But like you know, if any plastic company happens to listen to the show and they want to want to build a, a test box in Texas, uh, hit us up on social media because uh, season seven still, you know, I'd love to have a full test box. Dude, my podcast host tried to sucker me into building a replica of the shelf out of polycarb. And I was like, guys, do you have any idea how much polycarb costs right now? <laughs> so, ex- so, so expensive right now. <laughs> I know it. Um, all right. So next question from Alexander. Are there any veteran bots you're scared of going up against as a newcomer? I'm not scared of any robot per se, because I really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think if being a fan of the show for so long you really never know, right? Like I love, there's lots of fights that you're like, oh yeah, Tombstone's totally going to take this one. And, and they don't, right? I, I, I want to see the robot work the way that we intended it to. And that means being able to yeah. go up against uh, anyone. Um, we have, we have two full complete robots and I'm going to be driving these robots. Like I don't care if they're totally destroyed in every single match. So, uh, I'm not intimidated by anybody. Um, I think that our robot will fear, will like fare worse against horizontals than we will other drum spinners or other verts. But, yeah, but that's just related to like, look, every horizontal out there sees switchbot, switchback, and they, uh, we, and they're just like, I want to put a horizontal hit on the side of that arm and see what happens. Right. Like, I mean, I know that. And so that's who we're going to do worse against. Um, But I can't say particularly that I'm like, oh, no, I really, really don't want to do it. I I hope we don't see Tombstone or in the or one of the elite bots in the first match. Let us get get into it. But I'll also, you know, happily be the rookie bot who loses to Tombstone. So it's, it's all good. I don't know if I'm stealing somebody's question from later, but I want to ask, how much can you lift? How much can we lift? 
Yeah. I mean, I haven't been to the gym recently. So like, I mean, that's a very personal question, but um, <laughs> no, the, the robot, the, the, the arm itself is designed to handle at least the full 80 pound drum plus a 250 pound robot on top of it. So if your weapon goes down, like if the drum goes down, you are still a lifter bot. Yes. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that works. Um, we do have some fun other configurations and forks and stuff that we can bolt there, but I, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, the reality is if the weapon itself goes down, you know, we do have, we are a nice ambidextrous wedge. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I guess we become like, you know, a couple seasons old duck, right. At that point, if yeah. the arm still works, but the weapon doesn't, that's yeah. who we are. Yep. That makes perfect sense. And I think you kind of covered this earlier, but um, just because I know a lot of people have asked this online is switchback based on any prior bot you've built or that you've made. Nope. <laughs> nope this is a brand new concept this is and what better weight class to test it out at than yeah, 250 pound heavyweights why, why would we build a 12 pound class or robot and go go fight in connecticut to test it? yeah test no it. no reason well, to test well, that out at 30 pounds in connecticut yeah just, there's just, no, no just whatever go, swing for the fences build multiple <laughs> 250 pound classes and then fail miserably on on discovery channel let's go for it <laughs> i love your attitude it makes me so happy uh, all right, we're going to move on to Monsoon Captain Tom Brewster, who writes, Hi, Greg. Looking forward to meeting you and your bot next week. What's a good matchup for your robot slash who would you like to face? Also, what's the worst opponent for you? Now, you already said Tombstone, but uh, look, is it just horizontals in general or are there any specific bots? I mean, I think horizontals in general, um, like, you know, Valkyrie, Rotator, um, Hijinks, like, the true like um, ice wave, big powerhouse horizontal, big yeah. powerhouse horizontals, like that's going to be a challenge. I think there. I saw this later on in 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 one of the questions, but like my call out on robot I want to face is I want to face I want to fight huge because <laughs> you could actually reach out and touch him because I think I can hit the body right. Yeah, and I, I know that like like Whiplash did that and like. You know, that's still, that was a really fun fight to watch. Um, but, but I just think it would be fun in, in general. Like, I think that we reach higher than their body is. And I feel confident that I'll go weapon to weapon with the blade. And I think it would be hilarious or fun. And I'd love that fight. And yeah. So if, if, if uh, the producers are, are listening, like, Put on the fight card, maybe like the second match or third match, right? Like not out of the gate, but like, come on, give us that fight. <laughs> All right. So this next question comes from Jackpot Captain Jeff Waters, who asks, with this season being held in Las Vegas, Nevada, what are some gambles that you're willing to take this season? Um, I mean, I'm willing to try anything, right? Like, so in terms of the robot, um, like I, I'm not afraid for it to break. Right. I mean, I think we've got we've got a great like we have two full bots. We've got spares to basically probably build at least another another one plus maybe in some cases a fourth one. I um, mean, we're rolling with four frames to the event. I saw that. Yeah. Um, so it, I, I'm not afraid to try anything. Um, I yeah, I, I'll take as many gambles as you want. Now, if he's talking about prop bets just like sideline bets. Like I'm also open to those too. So like come see me in the pits. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out a 
creative uh, creative solutions for uh, fun fun prop bets. <laughs> I love that. Uh, as I recall, Malice had a little uh, NICAD mini bot they were driving around the pits for just that that reason last season. So, you know, uh, maybe get in touch with them. Yeah. Um, all right. So our favorite mail carrier, Tom Farkas, has a four part question. He's asking the questions I want to know. Right. All right. So can your weapon spin in reverse? It, it can spin in reverse. Is that something you're likely to do, though? Um, I think it's unlikely. Um, we have done the changeover from like going full speed to stop and then go to reverse. I don't. And you can do this all remotely. That's not yeah, like yeah, you yeah. have to change. It's, it's our, I mean, our uh, switchback is all brushless, right? So, uh, gotcha. so we have like full discrete control over RPM, speed, direction on all motors. Um, we can change the direction, but I don't anticipate us doing it. I mean, the, the, the reality is, is that when you go over the top, so like, let's say we're going to spin up, which is what I would say the natural spinning direction of the robot is, or the, the weapon is, um, if you go over the top, you're now a, you're now a down cutter. Um, but we can also drive the robot, right? So like you can just spin a 180 with the drivetrain. So we kind of get both directions of the weapon blade just by a factor of like, where the drivetrain is, where the arm is, without ever having to... And where the opponent will right. be. I think the biggest questions that some of these are asking is like, if we get caught in like one of the corners, the new corners that are um, defined by the the stage or the shelf, um, it's like, oh, well, are you going to swing back over the top and then reverse your blade to being an upcutter again? Well, it's like, no, we're just going to hit you with whatever direction the blade is spinning. And it might not be the. <laughs> it's still going to hurt. It's still going to hurt, right? Like, uh, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just from a force perspective, we would rather do, rather hit you with an up, but it's just because of like absorbing the energy into our own robot. Um, but look, you're in the fight. I, I, I actually say like, I loved um, Yeti's fighting style where just like, just smash, right? And yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. switchback has a little bit more finesse needed because we've got the extra degree of freedom. But I, I just want to smash, right? Like, I mean, Yeti was also rolling with like a sixty-five pound aluminum drum. You guys are not playing that game. Yeah, but it's also, but it's also. I mean, the weight. The drum could also take. A, I mean, it was basically armor and a drum. Like it, it could take some hits. Yeah, and and I mean, our our discs are AR five hundred. Right. You know, so <laughs> that was going to be my next question. All right. So like, I mean, bring it on. Right. I mean, we're sponsored by Send Cut Send. Like we've got a lot of those discs, right. Like uh, available on our eBay store <laughs> after the season's over. Right. Like, um, but just, I, I, I don't want to, I guess I'm saying is I don't want to go into a fight scared about making sure the robot is going to be capable of fighting the next fight. I just want to, I want to, yeah. I want to leave nothing on the table. Like, yes. I, I guess I, I guess I will put it like this switchback will, I want to either win by KO or lose by KO. I want zero judges decision. Like I want to be a burning pile of like <laughs> lithium batteries in the middle of the arena, <laughs> or I want my opponent to be a burning pile of lithium batteries in the, in the arena. Like I, I want to like, it's that's the inverse Gaussian life, right? Like complete win or complete failure. Like the average is not fun. Uh, there are many BattleBots fans that would agree with you. All right. 
Can we expect to see giant hits and both bots bouncing around the arena with this drum? Now, I'd imagine you, I mean, you said it's AR500. Doesn't sound like you're going for um, big hits. It sounds like you're going for a little bit of grind cut rip into your opponent. But but what are your, what's your philosophy going forward? Um, it's the, so the rake on the blade is, is really more of a throwing rake than a cutting rake. Nice. So, um, so if it's in the full down position, I think it'll compare to, you know, a more like throwing rake. Uh, it's pretty neutral. Um, and we did a lot of like internal kind of conversations. Um, I know I leaned on, um, some friends on some other teams to give us some feedback on the rake angle. Um, but I, I think that it's kind of a hybrid, right? Like I think in certain matches with certain opponents will be more strategic about where we try to hit, right? Drum at a certain height, going for a weak spot. That's the shot we're trying to hit in other fights where we're maybe more of a neutral matchup, put it as low as you can and try to take the hit, which will throw somebody across the arena. I mean, it's the, the, the weapon is powered by two custom wound brushless motors it's about 16 kilowatts of power um, in the in the drum spinning at maximum weight at maximum RPM. It it can do those same type of hits, right? Like um, I I pulled our spreadsheet up, our, our motor math calculating spreadsheet um, just for uh, just for fun right before this. So I had these numbers. And so it's like the energy in our weapon is in the like, you know, like 54,000 joule range, right? Um, and if we hit like, that's like a perfect connection. Like that's the energy um, where we think we're at. Um, Tombstone is around 74 kilojoules, right? Or 74,000 joules. And then like Minotaur is like 61 kilojoules, right? And this is all based on like, what they've said online on the weights and the RPMs and the right. sizes and what we've did research. So it's and like past seasons, not necessarily yeah, what they're bringing this. Yeah. Season. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't really know what any of those robots are bringing. Right. But like, so we're not out of the range of energy. Like we're not obviously like a top kinetic energy. Like we're not deep six, right. Like, or we're not, but like, <laughs> no. we're not, we're not, you know, hitting with a 20 pound drum. Right. Like, I mean, it's, it yeah, connects. It does damage. Yeah. I mean, that's, so you're telling me, like, I want to go back to what you, something you said earlier. So not only are you brushless hipsters, but you are like custom built your own, wound your own brushless hipsters. Hipsters. So okay, so Rev Robotics, we make brushless motors and brushless motor controllers, right? So, um, so we we have a line called Neo Brushless. Um, they're used heavily in first robotics, like lots of these motors. So. We, when we were designing the system, we were like, all right, what do we want? And it, it has nothing to do with like, like we had this luxury of, of a manufacturing partner who makes motors. And so we were like, all right, based on the packaging size of everything, based on how much energy we think we were going to do, based on the current draw and what motor controllers we were going to use and things like that, we're like, all right, we want this size motor at this KV with this internal resistance with this type of output shaft. And we kind of designed it and specced it and then sent it to our partner. And they were like, yeah, we could make those. And then they made them for us. Um, so then we got, I got a shipment and I think we have like 30 plus of each type of motor. 
and they integrate really nicely and we know everything about them and we characterize them and they're, you can't go buy them. So <laughs> whether that's the dumbest thing that any team has ever done or, or a really smart thing, we will find out in a couple of weeks or a week. A week, a week. You can't say a couple of weeks. You're going to give yourself a false sense of security. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm totally blown away by that. And at this point, I don't care if that works. That's amazing. Um, that's really cool. Like that's that. like kudos to you and your team for a having that capability, but B like kind of coming up with that. You know, one of the things we joke about on this show all the time is like, there are no motors built for combat robotics and you're kind of working on that. So that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who knows? They might, they, they might show up on our, on our store if they're useful a year from now. Who knows? Yeah. I'll, I'd imagine not after this season, but maybe after you find out everything that goes wrong with them this season, they might be useful for sure. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. Like I, 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 I that's not a problem. You fully intend to just, test them. Yeah. <laughs> I fully intend to test them. And, and, you know, if they go well, we'll probably give some of our spares away to some other teams and just let them, let them play. But, yeah. But uh, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I mean, we, we are very happy being an educational robotics supplier. We really don't need to add a combat line to our <laughs> product line. But, uh, but you know, if it's a thing and people really want them, it's not that difficult for us. Um, but I also am really happy to just go into something, go into a robotics event and just be a competitor and be there for fun and not have a, like a business thing related to it right it's just a fun thing yeah so i'm okay if it doesn't go that way too um all right so this is the next question from tom farkas this is actually a pretty common question with all of the nerdy little like robot chats that i'm in do you guys have magnets to help you stay on the ground like are you worried about upending the back end of the bot or like what are you trying to do to keep that body that chassis planted okay so we do have magnets um yes okay so we have we have a good bit of magnetic force um that's difficult to test, right? This is one of my yes. like one of my things where I'm like, okay, well the math says we have X number of downward pounds, so we can put plate weights on to see what that does, but I don't know the alloy of the steel or the thing. Correct. Like yeah. I don't know a lot of the details. Um so Well, and this is this is a floor that's one season old, right? So you're gonna have some patched parts of it. Like it's not gonna be consistent across the whole thing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. We we do have magnets. Um I will say that the design itself from a center of gravity perspective, um, when the drum is all the way to one side, the center of gravity is still sitting inside the set of wheels. So that the wheels nice. are the wheels are pushed like I mean, obviously they're fully enclosed because I'm I'm fully in the like Hey, hide your wheels camp instead of the like, Hey, hit my wheels. Right. But, um, <laughs> they are fully inside and they are pushed as far out as they can. Um, but hopefully the magnets help a little bit, even if they're not fully there, this is kind of where we get into that range of how much weight are we gonna, are we gonna put on the, the drum because yeah. it does move it, but we've, I've driven it with the full stack and I've driven it around. Um, we also, I, I, I assume that you know the people who are listening to this have probably seen a rendering or our our instagram account or whatever but like, if you haven't go check out their instagram account first of all they're one of the more active teams on instagram which is saying a lot because a lot of teams are very active on instagram and b they've, they've got really good content like it's um the graphics are really nice it's really professionally presented you guys do really good work so that's a that's a huge shout out to uh to gabby who's 
who's on our team, who's like, she handles that whole thing. Um, nice job, Gabby. You make your team look really good. You make your yeah. team look really good. Yeah. So, so on the, on the arm itself, you guys will, will notice that we have like, um, rollers or skids. Um, we've kind of have a couple options for those. And so with those skids touching the ground, when the drum is all the way down in the worst CG experience, you actually end up kind of running on the front set of wheels and the skids, as opposed to running on all four wheels, which also makes the robot a little bit more um, movable because your, you know, your back wheels that would be scrubbing on the drivetrain are not, don't have as much um, normal force on them at the time. So it actually can work to the advantage a little bit. Yeah, that's awesome. And then, um, you know, you talked about protecting those wheels a little bit, but uh, what is the armor made out of? Like what's your wedge made out of? What you, what you protecting your sides and your back with? Come on, it's AR500 everything, right? Everything's AR500. All right. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the, the easiest way to do it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. May as well have it all be the same material. Yeah. So, I mean, we have we actually have aluminum on the robot, too. Um, so, like, our like our drive, our motors um, are built as modules. So, everything is very modular on the robot. So, like, the arm gearbox is designed to drop out with a couple bolts and a, and a connector. Um, so, we can replace that. Um, all of our motors, like motor motor control are all bolted together onto like a supported bearing mount um so it's like you need to swap that you just pull the whole thing out it's designed to be cert it's we we designed the robot basically on the premise that we are going to go back down to bare metal after every single fight not because there's going to be damage but just because we're going to inspect everything so we're going to rebuild it every single time we go in the in the box right. so um it's all welded it's like a unishell it's all tabbed together so designed to be tabbed and welded and tempered and everything. Um, but it's all AR 500. And then we have um, the actual engagement armor. Um, we have multiple configurations. So like our standard package, like, you know, we've got uh, it's three, eight, like three eights AR. Um, and then we have thinner armor. So like we can, and it's, it's all a balancing act, right? So like heavier weapon, lighter armor, lighter weapon, heavier armor. Like we have, like side armor that's like the 0.1 AR, but we've also got side armor that's the half inch AR, right? So it'll be a very, very, we'll make those decisions based on the matchups, but um, it's, there, there's a lot, there's a lot there that we haven't actually shown on our social yet in regards to the way this robot's going to get set up for different fights. That's so interesting. I uh, love the fact that you guys are doing kind of a, a unibody construction, but tab, like actual tab fabrication. That's going to be really cool to watch. And, and, and by the way, huge, huge shout out to send cut send. Like, like they've, we've done a lot of orders with them. They are a sponsor of the team. Um, and they sponsor a lot of the BattleBots teams, but they do. Uh, yeah. We, uh, like they're like cut laser cut quality is like so oh, good. It's it's so, so good. good. Like I've worked with laser shops before and water jet shops before. And like the quality that we get, like our tab slots are tight, right? So like we have, like, we only designed in eight thou clearance on our tab slots and like everything went together beautifully, minimal grinding. It's, it was awesome. That's awesome. All right. So we're going to move on to our next question from Drew Davis, who uh, Luke, I really appreciate this. I'm going to go ahead and shout you out right now. Uh, Drew Davis is the captain of Jack Rabbit, Jack Move, and Bison at Norwalk Havoc. I'm really glad that we're going to start calling out the listeners that call in that are also competitors at Norwalk Havoc, not just at BattleBots. 
um, because they deserve their due for sure. Drew's an awesome guy. Um, So is Switchback like a hippo? Meaning in the same way that hippo is scarily and unexpectedly fast when it's out of water. Will this spot move faster than it looks? By the way, hippopotamus, second most dangerous animal on earth. I, I have heard that. Um, when I first saw this Statistically question, true. <laughs> when, um, so the, uh, I mean, switchback will go at 30 feet per second, right? Nice. So it is, it is a fast robot. Um, I, I will like driving this thing without the arm on there is like a blast, right? Like, like it is so <laughs> good. Like, um, we have some really fun videos we've been holding back. Um, so we like set up our, um, our dock leveler and we, we launched it Dukes of Hazard style, like, like off our dock, like into the parking lot, like as a, you know, trying to ruggedize testing everything, but it is a blast to drive. Obviously I will only go so fast when the weapon is spinning. So I suspect that if you go heavy weapon, the straight line speed will be very fast because that doesn't really impact that turning gets a little bit, you know, I mean, we've all seen big gyroscopic procession impact, um, um, robots, but, uh, it's, it's pretty fast. Um, it's also the other thing I'll throw out there is that it's very small. Um, we haven't really given you like banana for scale, um, photos, but it is very small. Like it looks tiny. Yeah. Maybe not, maybe not like copperhead small, but like we're in the, like, we're, we're going to be like friends with like tantrum and like copperhead. Um, which also is the other reason why I want to fight huge, because I think it'll look crazy like this tiny tiny little robot versus you know huge so i got a question here from ben moke he says given that the drums and drisks are regarded as separate weapon types what do you call this thing my answer would be a hammer drisk which you've already said it's not a hammer bot um but it's so wide that it may be a drum but it's not a solid piece it's many conjoint spinners that share an axle so what would you call this um, I mean, I like the term Drisk. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I, when it comes to naming things like this, like I'm happy to defer to the community, to the community and to the fans and just like, let you guys figure out something fun to call it. Um, you will be more creative than I am, um, in that regard, but yeah, Drisk is fine. Um, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a thing. It's, this is what happens when you build something different. <laughs> don't don't put me in don't put me in a category don't put labels on me like just just it's just a thing right uh, but call it call it whatever you want um i'll i'll throw some swag at uh whoever comes up with something really awesome that we start using so i got a good question from ryan rassett who asks why a row of blades and not one large one like why didn't you go with a solid drum configuration uh, so it's, that's an easy question. It's, it's a design for manufacturing thing and an adjustability thing. So, um, super, super easy to cut multiple, multiple discs, right? Um, you know, I, huge props to the folks like, um, like Minotaur and Copperhead who like machine these like beautiful egg beater drums and like crazy machining. Um, we just didn't do that. Right. So like we said, purely practicality we can laser cut flat stock and like as we can hold it together it you know it i don't know it was a practical thing and then the other thing is the ability to change the stack up right so nine discs at full weight all right so well we want to 
We want to spin that weapon really, spin it up really fast and hit some really light armor that we saw. Like, okay, well, let's run five discs in this next match. And we don't have to machine like all new drums, all new weapons. We literally have our weapon blades are like, I think they're like six pounds or six and a quarter pounds. Wow. So we have six and a quarter pound increments that we can change the weight. There's a, there's a, a base weight because of the axle and the tie, the tie rods and stuff. Sure. Yeah. Basically six and a half pounds for every single disc. And we can be totally flexible on that. And do you have just two tie rods kind of going through the whole thing aside from the, no, 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 no. There are six tie rods going through. (laughs) Okay. Sorry. No, no, no. So it's, it's fine. Like it's, there are six tie rods that are under tension radially. Um, then there's a piece of tube axle that's pressed through all of them. And then that runs on a solid axle that runs through the whole thing. That's a dead axle. So you have a, the thing is supported. It's a dead axle in the middle. And then you have a bearing supported tube that runs around that dead axle. And then around that tube axle is all the discs that are tie rod held together in tension. Under tension. Yeah. Under tension. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty rigid um, of a system. Takes a minute to put all that together. I'd imagine too, like between fights. Yeah. I mean, it's actually better than um, (laughs) better than you would think it is, but the first set that we got, the tolerance stack up was, was difficult to insert those six tie rods. And there was a lot of like a lot of uh, my, my wife, Christina is a saint and the amount of time she spent die grinding AR 500 um, uh, making danger glitter um, was a lot. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Question about your graphic design. So this is from Clepton Gilroy, who wants to know, what is that little swooshy footpath looking pattern on the side of Switchback supposed to be? Like, what is the design inspiration behind that? Uh, originally, it was like a road, right? Like, a, like you know, we were, we were Switchback kind of automotive driving theme when we submitted our application. So that was kind of a, supposed to be a, a road. Um, that is no longer on the robot. Um, that was, you know, magic of SolidWorks and rendering, and it's gone. Um, fortunately, we were able to get enough sponsors that that area is filled with sponsors now. But uh, originally, that was a we're team switchback, and it was kind of a like a dual meaning name because it was like we were going to go at this from like a driving is Zen and you know theme, um, and it was going to be ambidextrous. We've kind of dropped the whole like. Like none of us wanted to be like, you know, we couldn't be P1 with racing suits and we didn't want to lean into construction workers with hard hats and vests. So we kind of were just like, all right, we'll just be chill, you know, robotics team well put together and switch back is about the way the robot functions more than any particular road. Yeah, theme. you're not you're not super themed out. Yeah. I appreciate that, actually. That's that's just fine, especially for our first season, you know. Um, okay. Interesting. Oh, for our listeners that live in a flat place, um, switchbacks are when you're going up a incline or a steep incline and you go kind of to the left and then to the right and you kind of go, um, in a diagonal direction up a hill as opposed to like straight up the hill. Um, all right. So B is for BattleBots illustrator, Caleb Kenson. He wants to know, how much confidence do you have that your weapon will A, function correctly, and B, be an effective ca- weapon capable of winning fights? I don't know. 60% of the time works every time. Uh, <laughs> yes. 
Um, and, and in terms of winning fights, like I said, I, I think it really just comes in, depends on who the, who the opponent is, right? Like it, I really think that there is no doubt that this weapon has power when it makes a connection with something, you know, like things that we hit in our parking lot, it, it does some damage, but again, it's like, we're not hitting other robots that are also armored with AR 500 with their spinning weapon of doom. And so I, I don't know. Um, it's kind of kind of BattleBots is a little bit of chaos theory. So I would like to say we'll do well, but I also don't want to be the team that, you know, comes on your show and walks into BattleBots with this giant ego, like we're going to win the giant nut and in the first season, like we expect things to go wrong and we expect to learn a lot. And that's totally cool. Um, hopefully we're popular enough to get invited back for the next season and we'll just keep improving. You know, design is iterative. Um, if everything worked the first time, like engineering would be really, really boring. All right. So interesting question from Brian Latimer. Uh, how do you feel about the new arena hazard, the shelf being added to the box? And is Switchback going to be able to use this new hazard to its advantage? Now, a lot of uh, more experienced teams have some serious feelings about this. I'm wondering about how you guys feel as a rookie. Um, I, I'm a little bit indifferent to the shelf. Um, I don't think it hurts us like it hurts the horizontals. I think that yeah. every every horizontal is pissed at that shelf right now. For sure. Um, but I don't really see it as an advantage or disadvantage. Um, I think those corners are pretty interesting for us because we're able to go over the top. So getting corralled into those corners is not like death like it might be for some robots. Um, the CG of our robots so low that like we've driven off curbs and stuff that are that high and we land on our wheels and don't have a problem. So, and we can self write with our arms. So I, I don't really know. Um, we are going into this, like I said earlier, like we're going to smash some stuff, right? Like I can't say that we're going to be like the most strategic drivers and robot out there. So I don't know that we will be able to strategically use the, shelf to our advantage or disadvantage it's just kind of another challenge that we have on top of our thousand other challenges about being a rookie on BattleBots. <laughs> yeah fair enough <laughs> all right so i have a question from BattleBot superfan mary Catherine carr who wants to know uh what is your favorite part of the first robot scene and how does it compare to to a competition like BattleBots? um my favorite part of first robotics is seeing students transition like seeing that like that spark of that idea and then seeing them able to like tackle a problem that's too big and find success right i think that 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 is really an amazing thing that many 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 students go through and it puts things in real context um how it compares to competition like battlebots um they're very different styles of robots. And that has actually been one of our biggest challenges when designing Switchback is with first where they're task oriented robots, right? Score this ball in this goal, get this many points, do it again, run cycles, pick up this thing, move it this from the, like they're very task oriented. Um, judging whether something is good or not is very, you're, you're able to do a lot of um, quantifiable analysis. Oh, I scored so many points per second, or I can put, you know, it takes me 12 seconds to do a cycle of, of balls. And you're able to like, oh, 
well, I'm going to keep working on that. I went from, you know, a 12 second cycle to a seven second cycle. I have improved, right? I'm going to practice my autonomous routine and I'm going to do that and I'm going to get better at it every single time. And so you can quantify your successes, whether you win a match or not, you can still say, oh, we did better in this match than we did in the previous one. Uh, with BattleBots, it's so much based on who your opponents are. Yeah, um, that a lot it's more so, variables. It's there. very, very different. I mean, I, I could see a world where any of the winners going back as far as you want in any competition, like if that if that team pulls a different fight bracket or a different competitor, a different team wins the nut every time. Right now, I mean, yeah. the greats are still going to be the greats, right? That's kind of how that happens. But like, it's it's a very very bizarre thing because I don't know how to quantify like success and failure here. All we can really do is make stuff stronger, make it have more energy, work to be a better driver. But in the end, you're still dealing with a little bit of chaos. In in that regards, it compares more favorably to like motorsports than it does to to like first robotics which is a very more task oriented you know seeing where you're doing well or not doing well um it's it's just a lot easier to do engineering analysis over on the first side of things all right so i've got um i guess you could say it's words of encouragement from nelly the ellibot captain sarah mollian who asks or who says hi greg Welcome to the It Won't Work Club, veteran club member here. No question as such, but to wish you the best of luck, and I hope you suck it um, suck it to the critics. I don't think she's saying that right, but I know what she's trying to get at. Um, and because in a sea of critics, I like to be the cheerleader, so go you, smash him up, love Captain Bonk. Well, uh, thanks. thanks a lot, Sarah, and um, we hope to bonk other robots best we can <laughs> all right so tom farkas has one more question uh this is a really interesting one so what condiments go best on BattleBot stickers asking for a friend yeah so um i i personally think that i would go uh since we're in texas i think i'd go barbecue sauce for sure um you know, but you've got to find like a small barbecue place and get their sauce. Like none of the like super mass produced ones. Like it's got to be like uh, uh, artisanal barbecue sauce um, or, you know, or just or just go generic and like go go pick up whatever they'll give you at McDonald's. Right? And I'm they're, guessing they're your fun. stickers are food safe. Is that accurate? I cannot confirm nor nor deny that at all. I have not. Uh, we we have we have not done uh, extensive testing, and um, Rev does not test products on animals. So uh, you're on your own. <laughs> Greg, thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, we are looking forward to seeing Switchback in the Battle Box, whether it works uh, and destroys other robots and leaves smoldering lithium fires in the middle of the arena, or it turns into that smolding uh, lithium fire in the middle of the arena. We just can't wait to see how this thing performs. Thank you so much for going on the, coming on the show and taking time out of your busy last week before you go to BattleBots. Um, it means the world to us. We really appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate what uh, what y'all do. I mean, uh, everybody who produces media and you know does this and gets the word out and gets fans more engaged. You know, I think that's that's really awesome in its own right. So I appreciate you uh, having me on and. Uh, Hopefully, uh, it'll be a, a fun couple of weeks. 
Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you soon. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we're traveling to Louisiana, where a group of engineering students from Louisiana State have built a robotic arm that's designed to help people harvest crawfish. The arm mounts to the front of a crawfish boat and is designed to pull up a trap, empty it, refresh its bait, and drop it back in the water. The arm's prototype is currently operated with a PlayStation controller, and the plan is to eventually make it fully autonomous. More than 100 million pounds of crawfish are harvested every year in southern Louisiana, so this uh, robotic arm would really have its work cut out for it. Uh, when I first uh, was looking into this, when, when Luke was first telling me about it, I I actually did think that it, it was a robotic arm made for the crawfish and not to harvest the crawfish. So I feel like this makes um, a lot more sense considering how many <laughs> pounds of crawfish they go through. <laughs> yeah, it would be uh, cost but, prohibitive uh, to, to make uh, robotic uh, prosthetics, you know, for, uh, for individual crawfish, I think, Lindsay. Yeah, yeah. And I don't fully know what the purpose would be, but I feel like we've talked about crazier robots on this segment in the past. So I'm really like, I'm not going to put anything past what you can find on the Internet. I'll, I'll tell you, I was personally impressed that, uh, you know, they harvest 100 million pounds of crawfish because I feel like our family eats like 10 million of those pounds every year, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. Chris's dad um, just goes to the supermarket, I'd say, what, two times a week, scouring yeah. for them. He calls them yeah. mud bugs. Mm. And his favorite thing to do is just to go to the seafood counter and yell at the the person working behind there and say, "You got mud bugs!" <laughs> like he just knows they're gonna say no when he finishes their sentence for them, and then angrily walks away. And that's his favorite pastime. He loves it. He loves it. But like one out of every you know six months, they'll say yes, and then he's actually more upset because he wanted to be angry that they didn't have them. I do like your impression of it, by the way. I don't think I've ever heard you do an impersonation of that man yet. But, you know, everybody else on this podcast has so far. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would say, I mean, Luke, Luke and, uh, and Chris have, you know, very, very good. Uh, they have it down. I'm not quite there yet. Uh, but, you know, practice makes perfect. I lived in New Orleans for a few years. You did, Kyle. What? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I worked for a not-for-profit theater company um, for a while there as a technical director. Um, and I will say I ate a lot of crawfish, like a lot of crawfish. I feel like there's a month down in New Orleans where that's pretty much all you can get anywhere. And uh, I grew quite an affection for the food. I mean, they're basically just more tasty shrimp. Yeah, one of my favorite foods. Um so, uh, so yeah, you know, uh, they're going to be harvesting more mud bugs, I guess, with robotics, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. Well, that's it for the, us uh, this week. We'll be back in your feed next Wednesday with yet another mystery guest. We'll see you then. Bye. Welcome, Nicole. Welcome, Nicole. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you.